Good evening, everyone. It is nice to see you tonight, and thank you for joining us for the educational series here at Braille Institute. I just want to remind everyone that the Braille Institute Child Development Educational Series focuses on developmental information for parents, teachers, and other professionals working with young children with visual impairments. These topics presented should not be considered a medical or educational consultation, but information to help us better understand how to work more effectively with children with visual impairments. And tonight, everybody, we have Ms. Courtney Paul, and she will be speaking to us about parental resilience. So take it away, Courtney. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you. And, um, you know, one of the things that I, well, I like this topic a lot because I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, so I work primarily with uh, parents who have had children who are in the early intervention program or going into uh, an IEP or a 504B plan. And so what I really focus on with families is you know, how how that diagnosis or challenge or potential delay can kind of impact that family system. And resiliency is, is really a broad topic because it's something that the psychology community doesn't even fully understand yet. Uh, they don't, they, they, they want to understand. They want to know why um, are some, some people more successful at adapting uh, during periods of stress and, and others uh, can struggle with it. And so they, they have some ideas about it, but they still don't fully understand why resi resiliency is, uh, is very varied between families. So one thing that I would say, you know, as we're going through this training is the more that, that you, the parents, can offer in terms of questions you have or experiences that you've had, the more helpful this training can be. Because, because this is such a broad topic and it is so specific to each family system, uh, I want to make sure that this training can be helpful. So I encourage you to put any questions or comments into the chat. And in between sections, I'll be checking in with Liz to see what questions are coming up. Uh, because I want to make sure that any parent that's here tonight leaves feeling that they have support, they have an idea behind how to increase this because it is a challenge. When we are looking at resiliency, we are looking at you know, what a parent is experiencing, which can be the, probably the most stressful experience. You know, when parents have children who have a different need or have a different type of development, it, it really intensifies how your brain reacts to that. You know, your brain is meant to help you survive. It helps you survive your environments. But more than that, when you have children, your brain really becomes hyper-focused on their well-being. Because that, you know, that's evolutionary. It's how we are adapted over time. But it can also make parents feel um, overwhelmed because of the fact that the love that we have for our kids is so intense. And if you think that your child may be having difficulty in an area or may have challenges in their peer relationships, that it's something that it's very hard to get the brain to stop focusing on. And the brain will consume all of your energy to focus on that. And that's a big piece of resiliency is how do families rebalance that? How do they still maintain 
um, you know, relations with their partners if they have them, or family or friends, or if they have other kids, uh, without letting these other things that can kind of impact the family system overwhelm us. So what we're going to kind of go through tonight, and you know, this will be a, a fairly brief overview in terms of resili resiliency because of the fact that it is so broad, um, but we'll talk through kind of a, a general description of resiliency. Um, what happens when a family system is impacted. There is a really interesting study that came out of in England on enhancing resiliency for families who have children with special needs or delays or just different abilities. And then we'll touch a little bit on self-care. That's also a very big topic. Um, but it's something that's important to keep bringing up because it is something that makes a huge difference in a family's ability to have resiliency through stress or challenges or, or things that are different from what they have expected to experience. So in terms of resiliency, we're looking at how well a, a person or a family system can adapt through times that are difficult, so times that are stressful. Because we all experience certain amounts of stress. Now those, of course, are on a spectrum. They're graduated. But um, it's really about not just adapting to it, but having flexibility within it. So a lot of the families that I work with, um, and, and this is both parents, they can tell themselves that if they know their child needs this milestone, or is in this school, or has this level of support, that they can relax. And so what happens is that over the course of several years, they invest a lot of time, a lot of energy into giving that child everything they can possibly give, telling themselves that if we get to a point where this happens, I can relax. But the difficulty is, is that when that point happens, there's another hurdle and another. And so it keeps that intensity level really high. And that makes it difficult to enjoy parenting or enjoy your life or you know feel that you have aspects of your own identity that are still a part of your life as a parent. Uh, one thing that they found is that self-esteem and resiliency are closely related and part of that is that it comes to parental self-efficacy and they're looking at this for parents who have children with different needs and so for any parent of any child the first time you have a child, you don't know what you're doing. You, you're, you're trying to figure it out. Um, I remember when I had my, my first child that I, um, I've, I've worked in early intervention for a long time. I specialize in the zero to three populations. So I've worked with young kids for about 18 years now. And um, when I was pregnant, I really felt like, you know, the pregnancy was stressful. Just wanted to make sure that baby was born healthy. And once my son was born, the anxiety I felt really intensified. Because now, instead of my body doing everything it was supposed to do to take care of him, I had to do it myself. I had to modulate feedings. I had to do bedtimes or soothing, that kind of learning your child experience. And uh, you know, a lot of parents can go through a period of time with all of their kids where they feel like, I don't know how to help you. I don't really know what to do. Now, if you add an additional layer to that of your child's development is different than a typical developmental trajectory. Now you have uh, 
therapists or medical doctors or other people who are having to inform you, even though it is wonderful, wonderful to have that kind of support, it can also decrease a person's self-efficacy as a parent in feeling like they know their child, that they are the true expert in their child, that they know how to help them, especially if your child's differences from you are something that you've never experienced before. And so one thing that they have found in this kind of area is how well you feel that you're able to do the daily tasks, support your child, educate them, and understand their perspective really leads into that resiliency, which is a process, you know, especially for parents whose kids have a different need and something they've never experienced themselves. So they did a study where they looked at, you know, psychology people love to have categories. <laughs> they like to look at different areas. Uh, they came up with the five pillars of resilience. Um, but what I like about it is that it, it doesn't put the onus back on the parent of, you have to know everything about your child. What they really found is that it's about how well you know yourself and how well you access support, how well you um, you can kind of be graceful with yourself and understand that you're learning too and that you're doing everything you can for them and that loving them is the most important thing. And so these five pillars of resilience are self-awareness, so that is the most important. That's why it's number one. Clear perception of you because you are the most integral part of your family system, especially for your children. Who are you? What are your beliefs? What are your mo motivations? How do you manage your emotions? What do you know about yourself when you get into a state of emotion that is uncomfortable or stressful? The second one is mindfulness. So how well can you maintain the present? Because I think that when, when we have kids that have different types of development, it's very easy to future predict to think and think and think and think like, okay, well, they're doing this now and when they're three little this and when they're five little this and, da, 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 and it just kind of goes on and it pulls you out of the present moment. It, it kind of removes the parent from the experience of the progress that your child's made or that your family has made or um, how much you can really feel that you're in the moment with your family when you want to be. The third is self-care, and that's kind of the last point that we'll talk about today, but self-care is one of those kind of buzzword terms that's floating around a lot. People think it means a bubble bath, <laughs> and it's a little bit more complex than that um, because self-care is really about initiating and maintaining your ability to function in the world, um, and that looks very different for every person, you know, what that need is. But what I like about self-care is that it, it comes back to your needs are important to you. What you need to have for yourself, especially what you had prior to having your kids, it, it has to have a role in your life. If it doesn't have a role, you lose yourself. Your identity cannot just be being a parent or being an advocate for your child. It has to be that you have a presence as well and that you understand that your children benefit from seeing that you have your interests, that you do things that benefit you because as they get older, they'll know that that's okay to, to prioritize with their needs. Uh, positive relationships, of course, are a big aspect of this. We'll get into that a little bit when we talk about the study. Um, but 
having a network of people, whether that's um, a community of parents who have children with similar needs, or a faith community, or friends, or family, anything that parents can access in that area is going to help with resiliency. And, and one thing that we'll talk about when we go over the study is, and are you willing to access those? Because I think a lot of parents can feel like, well, my friends have a lot going on, or my parents have a lot going on. I, I don't want to reach out for help. I can do it. I can do it. And so the positive relationships isn't just having them, it's accessing them and, and being vulnerable with them, letting them know that you need help. And, and then the final pillar is purpose. So, you know, this kind of recognition of belonging to something bigger than yourself um, and feeling, you know, that doesn't have to be spiritually based or faith based. That can just be um, what you feel like your role is for yourself, what your role is for your family, and, and using that to kind of anchor. So before we go into the family system dynamics, um, are there any questions so far in terms of resiliency or the, you know, really the definition behind it? Because like I said, this can be somewhat of a broad term. So uh, any questions on that? There is none in the chat. Okay. So we'll go into impact to the family system. So as I said, I'm a marriage and family therapist. So I work from a family systems model, meaning that uh, once you are a family system, the things that happen don't happen just to the individual. They have uh, kind of a ripple effect throughout the rest of the family. That even with the parent that, that is trying as hard as they can to be everything to everyone, that there's still an aftershock when stress comes in or a challenge or difficulty. Um, because really the family system model is looking at um, how the system operates as a whole instead of each individual within the system. Now in a family system, of course, we expect that individuals have their own needs. They have their own reactions to it. But it also recognizes that even within that experience, that that effect on that one person can change their dynamic with their partner, with their other children, with their extended family, with their friends. Um, and so it really looks at when there is a disruption. And I will say this, for, um, for anyone prior to having children, whether you're in a partnered relationship or whether you are a single parent or a single parent with extended family that's supporting you, you had a life that was one way. And the brain's goal is to seek homeostasis. It wants everything to be predictable, regulated, calm, and it will anchor and pull you back to that state. And so when something comes in, that disrupts that. So again, you know, for any child, for any person that has a child, that will disrupt that homeostasis. Your schedule, your sleep, your focus, everything that happens as a result of having children disrupts that homeostasis. That's normal. Everyone will experience that no matter how supported you are, how in love with your children you are, it's still a disruption. You still have to now reorganize yourself around this new person coming into the family system. And so we have that already. We expect that for any person who's had a child. But if you have a child with 
a need that is different or with a need that is different than your own or your own understanding, then the family system can reorganize around supporting that child. And that's what it's supposed to do, but it can get too focused in. And then over an extended period of time, you know, as, as I was saying before, then what can happen is that that becomes the new homeostasis. So in the beginning, it feels intense, it feels overwhelming, but you get used to it. You know, we habituate it to things over time. That's how we survive. And so that intensity that comes in in the beginning is hard to regulate into more of a balanced place because it's usually going on for an extended period. And so when that happens, then pulling back from that or making modifications to that will actually cause stress to the family system even though it's for a positive reason. And that's why I think with the families that I work with, they, they may not be happy, or they may be having difficulties in their relationships, or not enjoying uh, parenting as much as they wanted to, or not feeling as confident as a parent as they wanted to. But then when we talk through things that they're gonna change, things that they're gonna try, they like the idea. But then when I follow up, a lot of times it's, oh, I didn't have a chance to do that yet, or we're, we're going to work on that. We just have this come up and this come up. And, and it's true. I mean, I don't think that they're lying. But I also think that what they don't realize is that it's challenging the homeostasis. So even though it's maybe not the best place to be in, it is also familiar and predictable and regulated to some extent. And to change that, you have to have a period of disruption. And that period of disruption is very difficult to sustain because your body is screaming at you to go back to what was working before. Even if you weren't happy with it, it was working. And so, um, you know, we, we start, in my opinion, we start with the center of the family system, which is the parent. Um, but then, you know, the other area we look at is the sibling dynamic. Now, this is, may not be applicable to the parents here tonight, but it is something that I like to talk about because of the fact that siblings of children with special needs or children who have developmental differences um, tend to have a very different reaction to those changes of the family system. And, and I wanna say this, it's not that it's all negative by any means, um, but they do tend to have higher stress levels um, compared to their peers who have uh, siblings with typical development. Um, they can try to fill a new role within the family system of helping out, being more responsible, doing these extra things. And again, I'm not saying that that's a negative thing. It's not necessarily negative. Um, but I, I worked with a family um, who had a child with, uh, pretty pretty impacted by autism. And um, her the mom, her, her older child had told her one time, I wish I had autism too. And she said, why would you say that? And he said, because I want people to come to the house to play with me. And I don't want you to talk about me too. And it's, it's not that she wasn't being a loving and attentive mom. It's just that the attention that her other child was getting was so disproportionate. It was so much more than most typical kids get access to. You know, when kids are young, and are identified as having, you know, special needs or a different need, then what we see happening is that 
we load them up with therapy. We load them up as much as we can because we know that that window is important. But from the perspective of a child, even if we tell them, this is why we're doing this, this is to help them, um, they're so little. And little children want attention from their parents and, and from positive adults. And so even though her younger child was struggling um, and honestly didn't particularly enjoy the developmental intervention he was getting because it was challenging things for him, um, his older sibling was looking at it as, wow, oh, these adults are coming in, they've got these bags of toys, they're playing with you, my parents talk about you constantly, they talk about you to other parents, they find other parents who have kids like you, and then, you know, and that's something that's important to remember is that even as much as parents try to prep their kids or, or talk with them about it, they're still kids. They still don't see the, the struggle as much for their sibling. They might see the struggle for their parent, and that's why they like to help, but they, um, they also see the attention, and, and they're not wrong. If your sibling has different needs than you do, they may get more attention than you do. And, you know, one of the things we look at in sibling support is, you know, that their needs are identified as their own, verbalized by the parent and supported. Um, their role in the family is defined by their unique interests, their unique personality. Because what we don't want them to think is that their value to the family system is being a helper. It's great to help. I think that's a great skill for kids to have. I think it's great for kids to develop empathy. What we don't want is for them to think that that's their value to the family system. Um, that their contribution when they are helpful is appreciated and not just expected. You know, I think that we, we certainly expect our kids, if you know, if you have multiple children, to, to help, you know, with their younger siblings or to, you know, set an example or motivate them or things like that. But again, it can't be too much of their experience in the system or else they will fall into that role of, I'm a helper, I'm a, you know, kind of in this parental level with my parents helping them. Um, but also that the parent acknowledges that it's hard or it's different or it's unfair. Um, and then, you know, they have their own individual individualized time and attention. Now, when I talk about this with parents, it is not about the, the, the quantity of time. It is about the quality. So it doesn't mean that I expect parents who have a lot going on to spend hours and hours a day with, with one of their kids to help it feel balanced. You can't really balance it. If you have a child who has therapy or has other educational needs, they are going to get more um, because they need more. Um, but at the same time, we want to have predictable, um, specific time for that child. And why predictability is so important is that it becomes less about the amount of time and more about I can count on that time. That if I um, always have reading books with my parents at night or playing cars with my parent every night after dinner or after bath time or whenever it is, that they can count on it. And, and that's really what they want, is over the quantity is just the predictability of it, and that the interaction is really centered around their interests and, and what their needs are that you know as their parent. So um, the other area within the family system is really just looking at how stress affects the 
the brain and how it affects our ability to process the information coming into the system. So when we think about the brain, I'm going to move to this other slide first. Um, so this is kind of a, a very oversimplified map of the brain. I hope none of these parents are neurologists. But um, we have, you know, this, these kind of four core structures of the brain. The brain develops bottom to top and then from the inside out. So we see here on this very simple brain map, the brainstem is the base of the brain. It's the first system that develops in utero. It regulates your nervous system, your metabolism, uh, all of your essential functions. It takes nine months to functionally mature in utero. So for children who are also born early, uh, they can have a brainstem that's a little bit more sensitive to stress because it didn't get that promised amount of time that it needed for uh, you know, for postpartum. And you know what's what's important to remember with the brainstem is that the brainstem is a it's very primitive. It's a survival structure. Everything is built on top of it. And so its job is to not only regulate your nervous system, but as a, an infant, to learn how to regulate. So for children who spent time in the NICU and they didn't get a lot of that co-regulation time with their parents, they can have a harder time with that. Um, because that, that time post-birth is really important for teaching your new baby and their new nervous system how to regulate uh, in the outside world. The, the second structure that develops, and it's more functionally mature around four or five months of age, is the midbrain. So this is what we call the sensory motor brain. Um, for all parents that have experienced it, this is also when we get the four-month sleep regression. It's because this part of the brain also regulates your sleep. And so it tends to wipe out your previous sleep pattern, and you have to do it all over again. So, uh, but it, it regulates uh, you know, motor planning, coordination and balance, feeding and appetite cues, sleep, uh, sensory processing. And so, you know, it's, it's, it works in conjunction with the brainstem, but it has more skills to it because motor planning is involved. That's why we don't put children uh, under the age of five months on a sleep plan because self-soothing is a motor skill for babies. You know, as they get older, it's a different skill. Um, but the primary goal of self-soothing for young children is just it feels better if I roll to my side or my tummy or put my fingers in my mouth or touch my hair. And so it's how they start to learn that they can affect change in their nervous system by giving their own body's input. The, the limbic system, that orange level there, is the, the feeling brain or the emotional center of the brain. It regulates mood, um, memory, attunement, um, relational skills, all of these really rich parts of, of connection. Um, and, but what's important to remember is that the limbic system, the midbrain, the brainstem are all very primitive. Uh, the neocortex is the only part of the brain that's actually not primitive. And so this is a structure that controls reasoning, logic, problem solving, language, all of these kind of higher level skills. And so when a brain is under stress, so let's take a parent, for example. So we have very mature brains. Um, and so the, the majority of the time, we're going to operate in this kind of cortex level. But when you have stress and you produce more cortisol, and I think that there's a misconception that cortisol is bad. Cortisol 
in its normal amount is not bad. It's, it's just your alerting hormone helps you stay awake. But when you have stress, it, it's over-secreted. And so when it is over-secreted, then what we have happening is it starts with the brainstem. The brainstem picks up that cue that the person's under stress and it activates. And so instead of staying at this cortex level, it starts to pull the person down. So you're feeling, you know, that you have a, a handle on something and then the stress comes in. It will drop most parents with mature brains into the limbic system where they start to feel more um, viewing things through an emotional lens, um, can be more emotionally reactive, less rational about things. Um, I think most parents, especially, you know, with young children can, can get into that place pretty quickly because nothing is more important and personal to you than your child and their well-being and so it's very easy to to drop into that level um, but it also makes it hard to accept help it makes it hard to regulate your your emotions and and reflect reflect on them and process them it can make it hard to let someone else do something different if you have a partner or a caregiver that helps um, because it can also, again, make that person feel more reactive in that moment. That even though later on they may understand that that person was trying to be helpful, in that moment, at that part of the brain, it felt invalidating to the parent, or it felt like they were stepping on their toes, or it felt like they weren't doing it the way that I want you to do it, and I've been doing it this way for this long, and when you don't do it the way that I've been doing it, it makes you feel like you don't value what I'm doing. And so it starts to feel like a much different experience of evaluating the situation. You know, for most adults, dropping into these lower structures, the midbrain, the brainstem, they take a, a much higher level of stress because their brains are more mature. And if that does happen, that's when we get bits of anger, depending on stress level, rage, um, just, you know, panic, uh, things in that area where, um, even the person experiencing it feels totally out of control of what's happening. And so that is something that's important to remember in a family system is it's not just your upbringing, your relationships and all that. It's also how stress affects your brain and how it affects your ability to reflect and understand the situation as it's, as it's happening and how other people are experiencing it. And so it's something that is just important to keep in mind because it's a human experience. Everyone does that. Brain is made to be able to move through these structures. But if we find that certain situations are dropping us into this place where we feel more reactive, where we feel more defensive or more anxious or more panicked, that that means that there's a need that's not being met, that needs to be met to have this resiliency. So that was a quick overview on the brain impact, but um, but are there any questions about the, the family system piece or the effects of stress on the brain or the sibling piece before we move on? No, there are no questions in the chat right now. Okay. okay. So, this study um, was on enhancing resiliency, and it was for parents. Now, uh, this may not apply to everyone. This, this is a parents who have children with special needs or with uh, significant health needs. 
Um, and what they were looking at was how do we develop intervention and supports for families in these situations that are different potentially from their family members or their friends. Um, and what they found in kind of doing this pilot program were four areas of need for families within this program. So the first was emotional coping and then practical coping, support network, and then an area they defined as you and your child. So some of the questions that for the families that are here tonight that I would you know, encourage you to think about while we're talking through this is how you would answer these questions. Um, I'm, I'm going to share my PowerPoint with the Braille Institute as well, so you'll have a, a copy of this. But I thought that these were really um, important questions for, for families to be able to think about and, and to ask themselves. So the first is, who or what gives you emotional strength? Um, the second one, which I like a lot, is, are you kind to yourself? How hard are you on yourself? Do you allow yourself to feel this full range of emotions? Because I think as parents, if your child is having uh, therapy appointments or, or challenges or difficulties, um, parents don't tend to let themselves feel sad about it or, um, or lonely, um, that it can feel like I need to focus on the positive. I need to make sure that they get everything that they need. Um, I don't want to give any attention to the fear that I have. So for families who have higher levels of resiliency, they they allow themselves uh, the space to feel it all. That you can be proud of them. You can be excited about the progress. You can feel hopeful. And you can also feel afraid or um, frustrated if you don't see the process or the progress that you want to see. Um, that they they really let themselves feel their feelings and they don't guilt themselves for it. Um, that's why the other question is, do you struggle at times with feelings of guilt or self-blame? Even if you know that you are not responsible, even if you know you're doing everything you can, I think for parents sometimes it feels like, could I be doing more? Um, I've seen parents load their kids up with a really rigorous uh, therapy schedule where it really is sourced from a, a feeling of I, I'm going to do everything I possibly can and sometimes reading that their kids need breaks that they just want to play they don't want to be in therapy but in that moment their their guilt about I should be doing more is is what kind of changes their perception of that experience um, and if a parent feels guilt or self-blame which maybe not every parent does but if that parent does how do you manage that? Do you talk about it or do you hold it inside? Um, because when we think about parenting, you only have so much energy to give. And I always tell the families I work with, you have to conserve that. You know, There's only so much energy out you can put if you don't have energy coming back in. And holding on to feelings of guilt or responsibility or I should be doing more or I should have done this differently it is exhausting because it doesn't actually produce any kind of outcome, but it also um, wears the parent out. Um, and they're expending energy on something that actually isn't going to change anything. 
And so managing those feelings, which are totally natural and, you know, and expected for some parents, uh, is a big piece of this. So practical coping is different from emotional coping because it's looking at day-to-day. Um, so I think a lot of parents can be pretty good at this um, because it has to be done. We gotta get up, gotta get dressed, we gotta do your whatever that we have planned, we gotta get you to school or you know, do these activities and something about that kind of structured logistical schedule um, to some extent can be regulating. Now you can over depend on it, um, you can use it to cover up the things that you're feeling, um, but but it's also important to look at how, how is that going because not every parent feels that they can manage that schedule or feels overwhelmed by that schedule. Um, they look at are there things that you feel could be better and not necessarily that you could be doing better but just where do you see the breakdowns happening in your day? Are there things that could make this run more smoothly? What do you think could make that go better? Because it comes back to that parental self-efficacy of you know your child, you know your home life, you know your schedule, just look at it. Is there anything happening here that if we rearranged it, could go better, could make this less of a stressful experience? And then how, you know, um, how comfortable do you feel um, making those changes? And then also, what are the areas that you feel very successful, where you feel like you are managing it very well? And how can we relate that to other areas of the day? Because most parents are having parts of the day that they are very successful with. And so we want to look at what is making that different? Why is that going better? Why is that more successful? Because this is the daily management of your life for your family. So support networks is this third area, um, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, but you know, who do you regard as your social network? Can you pull that to mind? Um, who can you call for help, and do you call for help? I mean, I think there is a certain comfort of knowing that you have a support network that would be there for you, but it doesn't help if you don't access it, and sometimes it can be difficult to to ask for help, especially if you're trying to manage everything and trying to do as, as much as you can. Um, and, you know, who gives you strength? Who tells you that you're doing well? Who reflects back to you the accuracy of your contribution to your family? Who tells you that you're doing as much as you can to, to reflect reality to you? Because um, I think as parents, we need people who see it not from the perspective of a parent of, I can always do more, but from the perspective of, um, I care about you as an individual, I see the work that you're doing, I see how hard you're trying, and I want you to know that I think you're amazing, I think you're a hard worker, I, I don't, you know, I think that the things that you do for your kids are important. Um, and then this kind of last point of, do you have people who you can talk with openly? Um, it's, it's difficult to be vulnerable, and it's easier to uh, give percentages of the situation of, hey, this was hard today because of this. I'm going to let you have 
10% of the story because um, I don't want to feel judged or I don't want you, know, you to feel sorry for me or I don't want whatever the feeling is behind that kind of holding it in. And so a support network is only as valuable as can you access them and will you? And can you talk openly without fear of having to manage their emotions about what you're saying? And then this last section of what they call you and your child. You know, um, they look at you first. So how are you doing? Do you take care of your needs? They looked in the study at um, the parents' diet, um, eating things that fuel their body and give them energy. Um, do they get out? Do they move? Or do they feel sedentary and cooped up? Um, do they practice self-care? And if they do, what are they doing? Do they have time if they need it? Do they access therapy? Or do they spend time with friends and family um, to, to let people support them? Um, how do you find time for yourself? How do you make that happen? Is it sporadic? Sporadic time for yourself is associated with lower resiliency, whereas predictable scheduled time for yourself is associated with higher resiliency because you can count on it. That when you know you're having um, a harder week or you're just stressed for, for many reasons, but you know, okay, well, Friday night is kind of my night to myself or every other Saturday I go to this class or I, I go to this thing, that when they know that they can count on it, it helps them pull through the more challenging times. And in this last area for you and your child is, do you realize your value to your child? Do you um, give yourself credit for what you're doing? Do you know that you love your child as much as possible and that you are doing everything you can and that they are benefiting from that? Um, how, much, how much credit do you give yourself for um, what you put into the relationship? Are you always telling yourself you can be doing more? Um, because that's a very big difference with resiliency as well. Is it's, you know, parents with, with challenging things coming in or stress uh, are always going to feel tired or are always going to feel a little bit like they could do more, but parents who have more adaptability in those situations also feel a little bit of this, you know, it's okay. I did the best I could this week, and everyone's great and fine, and it wasn't perfect, but I, I did it, and, you know, and, and at the end of the day, my kids felt loved. They felt cared for, and do you tell yourself that, or do you just look over the things that you think you could have done differently and, and criticize yourself? Any questions about the that section? Yes, there is one question. What would be a good way to manage the negative emotions like sadness, anger, and guilt? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. So I think that those negative emotions, which I always just say are just, they're just they're your feelings. They just don't feel as good to feel them. You know, it feels heavier or it feels, for some people, like it makes it harder to move through the day or you feel like the thoughts are intrusive or you know, kind of 
the stuff coming in. And so the first thing is to acknowledge them. Um, you know, I, I work with um, some families where they have partnered relationships, and I notice that what can happen is that <clears throat> one parent may say, I'm scared about this for them, or I feel guilty that I didn't do more, and the other person, whether it's a partner or a supportive family member or friend, will, will try to come in with a reassurance, like, no, but you're doing so great, and you're doing everything you can, or they're fine, they're fine, it's okay. And and that comes from, I think, a good, a good place. Like, the intention is right, I want to make you feel better. But I think that the first step is to acknowledge it and, and sit with it to say why you feel sad, why you feel guilty, why you feel afraid, why you feel alone. Because if we don't look at them, if we try to cover them up, if we try to always focus on the positive, they will not get better. They will continue to pop up like whack-a-mole, where you get it down over here, and whoop, here it comes over here, and here it comes over here. And so I think that for all people, it is an important practice to say out loud, the hard things as well as the positive and to look at them. Why do I feel this way? And sometimes there is no solution. Sometimes it is just, I'm sad that my child has to struggle or feel different or, or, or do something that's hard for them that's so easy for everyone else. And to feel mad because it's unfair. Um, because those are all real experiences. Um, if they, if those feelings, though, if, <clears throat> you know, if it doesn't feel supported, or even if someone's trying to support you but it's not helping, you know, then I do recommend talking to a counselor, um, someone who can sit with you in those. It's not going to just try to make them better, because I think when people love you, whether it's a partner, family, or friends, they just so badly want to fix it. They want to make it better. And sometimes the advantage of seeing a counselor or a therapist is they're about you, they're invested in your progress, but they're not your family, they're not your friends, they don't love you in that way, and so um, they can sit in it with you. They can let you feel the way that you feel, and they can say, where, where does this come from? Where are the times that this is happening? What are some things that we can do so I give you an outlet for those so they don't overwhelm you. Um, because all the feelings need to have equal attention and equal validation. Um, that part of the brain that I was talking about earlier, the limbic system, um, it's interesting because if, so for example, let's say one person is in more of that limbic state, feeling very uh, connected to their emotions and very kind of intense with them and they say, I'm going to take as a random example, um, I had a horrible day at work, my boss was awful, it was chaotic, da, da, da. if they do that and then they have a friend or a parent or a, a partner who tries to come in with what we call a cortex strategy, which is problem solving, oh, you know what you should do is you should talk to them about this or you should tell your boss you're not going to work anymore. You, I'm going to problem solve this out. What they found is that when you tell a person who is really intensely in that emotional experience something that's a problem solving strategy, it actually um, drives them deeper into the brain because the limbic system, more than anything, craves 
validation. It, it craves reflective statements. I'm so sorry that happened. That sounds awful. And it's not to be fixed. But that sometimes even not having a, a solution of like, oh, I'm going to tell you how to fix this. Just someone saying, that must be so hard. You sound so tired. Or you sound um, sad and and I'm sad for you. I hate that you're going through this. That that actually makes the person, at least the brainstem and that stress level decrease. And so even though that validation, that reflection, doesn't feel like problem solving in that kind of neocortex, let's fix it way, um, it's actually what the brain wants. It makes the person's nervous system calm down. And that's an important thing to remember. And I hope that answered that question. If not, let me know. Any other questions for this section? No, thank you. So self-care. Um, I read this quote <clears throat> shortly after I had my, my first job, and I loved it. Um, because I, um, I had a mom very close to, wonderful mom, um, and she lived her life for her family. She worked, she picked us up, she did all of our activities, she took us everywhere, she, you know, she didn't cook, my dad cooked, but she cleaned, she helped us with our homework, she did bedtime stories, um, she did everything. And um, as I got older, I thought, what did she do for herself? And I didn't really even think about it because, of course, we're until children with our parents. We think that's what their job is. But um, I, I looked back on it and I thought that must have been exhausting for her. She was always doing something for someone else. She never did anything for herself. Um, and I did ask her about it as an adult and said, "Do you ever wish that you had given yourself some time?" And she said. Yes, I do. She said, I had a really hard time when y'all got older and more independent and left because you were my hobby. And she said, I felt a little lost without it. And, and she said, and I also think I probably had more stress than I needed to because I just made my life about taking care of my family in every way that I could. And so when I read this, you know, it resonated with me because of what my mom had said, which was, you were someone before you were a parent, and that person matters too. That you have so many aspects of your identity outside of being a parent or a partner or an adult child of someone or a friend. That you have interests that are your own. And that's really what self-care to me is about, is going back to things that are just for you, that are so central to you. And that understanding that your children seeing that is beneficial to them. That you can you can be more present with them if you do those things. And it, and it does feel a little kind of guilty or weird or sometimes to, to take a step back and do those things. Some parents have told me it feels self-indulgent. It's not. Um, but what I tell those parents is if you bring yourself out for your kids, and they love you. They have a great attachment. And then when they're older, and um, 
they're in relationships or maybe they have their own family, they're going to think that that's what's required of them to be as good of a parent as you. When the reality is, is what made you such a good parent is that you love them so much and that you had unconditional positive regard for them. That's what made them feel secure. That's what made the attachment. It's not that you killed yourself doing a thousand things for them. It's that you love them unconditionally. That's 99% of, of the piece there. If you love your children unconditionally and you see them always in this positive regard, even if they do things that you don't agree with or you know, they have to be corrected because they're you know, doing stuff that they shouldn't be doing, that you still know that they're yours, they're your child, and you see them for all their positives. And I think that that pressure on parents to make their lives about that, um, I don't think it's as helpful as I think it is because it burns them out. And it sets an example for their kids that this is the appropriate amount of investment in your family, when in reality there's room for, for both. Of course, parenting is going to have a, a bigger piece of the pie, but still are you. You still had a whole life. I actually thought my parents, for a long time when I was a child, were born fully formed adults. I couldn't even imagine what they were like, not as my parents. Um, but that's because I didn't see it. I didn't see their interests. I didn't see any of that carryover. They were just parents. And so I think it's important that when you think of self-care, it's what is central to me that is separate from every other relationship that I have that is fulfilling, that makes me feel recharged. Because I, I hear so many people saying that self-care, you know, like, oh, I scroll on my phone or I watch TV or things like that. And that's not bad. Everyone needs to dissociate and check out sometimes. But unfortunately, those things are actually not recharging. They're a break, but they don't actually give you any energy. And the goal of self-care is to have restorative rest, activities, interactions that can create balance. Um, when we look at cortisol production, the types of activities that regulate the nervous system are things that are patterned, repetitive, rhythmic. That's music. That's going to a concert. That's going for a walk, going for a run. Um, it's, a, it's a lot of different things that, you know, a creative outlet, however that looks to you, um, that those things actually decrease cortisol production and they, they make the nervous system operate in a more regulated zone to go back to that mindfulness piece that you can feel present. You can feel like you're enjoying it. And then kind of this last point here is that if we do not practice self-care for parents who are overextending themselves, you can experience things that we call compassion fatigue. That's feelings of helplessness or powerlessness in the face of a loved one's struggles. And so if a parent is feeling um, reduced empathy, reduced sensitivity, feeling overwhelmed, feeling exhausted, numb, detached, all those things, um, then that is a sign that you're burning out your nervous system basically and you're burning out that emotional center in your brain, that limbic part. Because compassion fatigue doesn't actually mean that you don't care, it means you have no energy left. Um, you know, I've had parents say that to me before, like they're they're having a hard time with one of their kids and a friend tells them that's something that's a stress, but it's not as significant as what they're going through, and they don't, they're like, come back to me when you have a real problem. And they'll say, like, I never used to feel like that. I don't know why I'm acting that way. 
but it's because they're burned out because there's only so much of that you can give and that limbic system needs input. Self-care treats the emotional center of the brain. That's what it's for. And so if you start to feel these things, that should be a little alarm bell going off that you aren't doing self-care, that you are overextending yourself. And you don't want to get to that place where everyone's struggles are compared to who has it worse because that's not how you maintain healthy relationships for yourself and other people. So I know we're right up to our time, but um, I'm happy to stay on for a few minutes for any parents that may have any additional questions. <laughs>